Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Many commentaries break this up into two parts. We're going to merge them into one. And look at the two themes that can each paragraph picks up. This is the Word of the Lord. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive this spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer yet again. Father, we, in times like this, recognize our need. And we recognize our need anytime we come to a difficult passage. Anytime we come to a particularly Greek passage, as the logic is a bit more than many of us can bear. Anytime we come to a common passage, as we immediately go, I know this, and tune out. We really are quite poor listeners to your word. And so we ask that you would give us all tender hearts, not hearts like Carolina clay baked in the sun, but hearts much like land that's been soaked by weeks of rain, soft, easy to receive your word. Give us humility and submission, understanding and tenderness, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know I love Calvin and Hobbes. I love those cartoons, and I've loved them since I was little. Uh, You may not know the little boy Calvin. If you know the cartoon, Calvin and his pretend tiger, right? Calvin is actually named after John Calvin. Uh, Hobbes' pretend tiger is named after the great philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Uh, But they they encapsulate so much of the joy of, of childhood. And as a child, I loved them because so much I watched that little boy and thought, man, he has great ideas. As an adult, I have begun to appreciate that cartoon a little differently. I appreciate how wonderfully those cartoons capture that moment in a parent's heart where they look at their child and go, son. 
Son. I love how almost every comic strip, at least you know one out of every four, captures that moment where either mom or dad looks at their child and goes, I love you so much right now, yet you baffle me with your foolishness. This is mind-numbingly shocking. I think I also as a child appreciated those because I think I received that look far more than most. Where mom and dad would just look and go, oh, son. What are you doing? What is running through your head? To think that was a great idea. Right? I read one this week where Calvin is contemplating uh, the value of life and the meaning of life and how experience contributes to it just before plummeting off the top of the hill in the wagon as they ride together. And Calvin talks about living life to the fullest and is so profound in his argument for living life to the fullest that Hobbes steps off the back and is like, I'm not going with you, as Calvin goes hurtling down to his demise at the end. Oh, son, what are you doing? What's running through your head to think that is a great idea? I mean, really, what was the argument there? Did you think it was a good idea? It's that moment that we jump into in Galatians chapter 3. That moment where Paul, the father of the church, the spiritual father of the church, is both filled with this overflowing of love and at the same time is a bit bewildered by the foolishness of the church. You foolish, foolish, foolish people. Right? One of the other commentators translates it kind of loosely saying, Oh, you lovable idiots. I love you so much, but you are so dumb right now. That's the tenor of the passage that we jump into. You lovable knuckleheads, you are missing the point. You're being fools. You're being stupid. You're being all of those words that we don't let our children say. But God does in the scriptures. In chapter 3, we jump into Paul's discussion over the nature of the gospel. Over the consequences of the gospel. Over the supremacy, the value, the truth of the gospel. And here we see his zeal catch fire. In chapters 1 and 2, he's been arguing for the gospel largely connected to his own experience. But here he changes gears and his logic catches fire and it consumes the Galatian church. What is the gospel? They've been wrestling with two ideas. That grace is free in Jesus. That Jesus lived, that he died, that he was wrecked, that he ascended into glory after being resurrected freely that his people might be saved. That's option one. And option two is that Jesus died, but it wasn't quite enough. That I have to bring something to the table afterwards. That that equation isn't good math. The the, the equation doesn't balance on both sides. Forgiveness equals Jesus plus something else. Plus me in some way. 
I have to bring to the table either obedience or goodness or circumcision or keeping Jewish law or avoiding bacon. Things like that. Be a smaller church, wouldn't it? Just saying. And here he takes up this task of looking at them and saying, all right, well, let's, let's just consider for a second how we should evaluate the gospel. Like, let's just pause for a moment and let's just look at if we're going to evaluate the gospel, how will we do this? How will we actually evaluate it? And he said, oh, foolish Galatians, okay, who has bewitched you? Recognizing two ways, the old way and the new way. Who has bewitched you? How is this going to work? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, this is not germane to the sermon, but is absolutely beautiful, so I'm going to say it anyways. They didn't see Jesus crucified, did they? I mean, the Galatian church is not Jerusalem. They live on the other side of the known world at the time. But yet, interestingly... Paul stands before them here in the writing and says, look, it was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Okay, that's very interesting, isn't it? How would Jesus be publicly portrayed as crucified before them? You rack your brain in the very thing I'm doing now. Paul's teaching them from the very beginning that, look, in proper biblical preaching, you see the crucifixion. And you see the resurrection. You see the ascension. You see Christ. Calvin said on this passage, Let those who want to discharge the ministry of the gospel aright... Learn not only to speak and to declaim, proclaim, but also to penetrate into the consciences so that men may see Christ crucified and that his blood may flow. Listen to this. I love this next sentence. When the church has such painters as these, she no longer needs wood and stone. That is dead images She no longer requires any pictures. Do you know why historically the Reformed Church has had nothing in them? You want to go into Presbyterian Church any period in in American history, it looked like this. It's because all of the portraits of Jesus are in the preaching and the liturgy. It's right now that you get to see Christ crucified before you in the sermon. And resurrected and ascending into glory. Neat, off topic, but awesome. I couldn't resist. (laughs) Not often I do that. How do you evaluate the gospel? Well, the preaching is going to be key. It's the foundation of it in many ways. But he's going to offer two kind of schemes for us to look at. What is the gospel? Really, what, how do we evaluate truth from untruth? How do we evaluate healthy gospel understanding from unhealthy, incorrect? How do we evaluate the real gospel from the false gospel? And before you go any further, you would say, well, I mean, that's something that I already know, right? I grew up in the PCA. I grew up in the church. I know what the gospel is. I'm, I'm, 
I've done this thing before. I know this. Why would you be talking about this, Michael? This is a waste of our time. Well, one, the Bible talks about it, so I kind of have to. But two, is this actually is the great battle of the American church, isn't it? To contend for the true gospel. I mean, how many times have we talked where uh, I'm using statistics or illustrations of how many large portions of the church believe that the gospel is Jesus gives you good financial gifts? Or believe that the gospel is if you're good, Jesus loves you. Or believe some other tragic flaw of that, right? The percentage of believers, those who call themselves Christians in America, who actually hold to the true gospel is frighteningly low. This is our task, brothers and sisters, to discern what is the true gospel. And it's interesting, he starts in a place, and I love that this is the Holy Spirit at work, he starts in a place that makes me uncomfortable. Truth be told, I don't like Paul's reasoning here. I would have gone somewhere else. I didn't write this. I wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to tell you what he said, not what I would do. Where does he start as a test for what the true gospel is? Well, interestingly, he starts with the proof is in the pudding. Right? You know that phrase, the proof is in the pudding? It's actually from 1605 from a guy named William Camden. Camden. The original was uh, actually not the proof is in the pudding. It's the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You can tell how well something is made when you eat it. Right? It doesn't matter how nice it looks. If it's nasty, it's nasty. You can tell by how excellent of a cook someone is by how yummy it tastes. And in essence, what we're saying here that Paul is going to highlight is you can tell the truth of the gospel in the experience of her people. Experience confirms the gospel in the life of the believer. You can see the truth of the gospel when you look at the life of the Christian. Now, this is interesting because only Christians can see this. This isn't something for the the world out there. This isn't an argument for why they must believe in Jesus. This is a test for us to look at the truth of the gospel by the proof being in the pudding, the experience that God provides. And he actually highlights here, the Holy Spirit does, four ways in which our experience functions as a test for the truth of the gospel. All right, he begins with uh, publicly portrayed as crucified, verse 1, rambling on why uh, Jesus is proclaimed in the church. You see him in preaching. Let me ask you only this. <laughs> I love it. Let me ask you only this, a series of rhetorical questions, right? That's a trap if I've ever seen one. Let me ask you only this, and it's a rhetorical question that you would hopefully know the answer to very quickly. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. And so he goes back and says, look, I want you to go back and to look at you, Galatian church, look at your experience. Look at your conversion. And look at when the Holy Spirit came into your life. When God came into your life and transformed your heart, when you were initiated into the people of God, was it by the works of the law Or was it by the mercy of God? What was it in your heart when you experienced the Holy Spirit come in? 
Now, he's writing at this point to a church that you get to see conversions taking place mainly later in life, right? Um, This is new church, church expansion. For those that have grown up in the church, folks like me, this is a very difficult question to answer because I don't recall when the Holy Spirit came into my life. I, I don't remember what it's like to not have him. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, that is the greatest gift that Lord has ever given me. I have no idea what it's like to not have the Spirit. However, for some of you, that's not your story, is it? And you, much like the Galatian church, you remember when the Lord came into your life. And you remember when you were transformed. And you remember when you were brought into God's presence. And interestingly, everybody that remembers that moment in true gospel fashion None of them ever say, you know how I got to that moment? By being a good person. (laughs) Man, you know, I was just so good that the Holy Spirit was like, I need to go indwell that guy because he's righteous. He's just so awesome that I need to. No, nobody ever says that. No one ever does. The nature of the Christian experience is to know that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, to know that it's mercy. To totally understand that. Right? As if you go to any man who's a part of a good, healthy Christian marriage, he understands mercy at his wedding. Because there was a moment when those doors opened in the back and he realized, oh, she has no idea what she's doing, does she? (laughs) She had no clue what she's doing. Because I should not be standing up at the front if she's the one standing at the back. It's mercy. I don't deserve this. I didn't earn this. I wasn't a wonderful enough gentleman that I get her. We do that with the gospel. It's confirmed in our experience. We see the Spirit. We go, well, I didn't deserve him. It wasn't good enough. That's a pretty powerful question, but interestingly, he doesn't stop with that. I love Paul. As if that's not enough of a punch in the mouth, right? That's the knockout punch, and he continues to pummel them to a pulp. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? (laughs) Are you so foolish? The answer is yes, you are. Having begun by this Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So now he starts, moves from conversion into sanctification. Look, first we understand how you started. Did you start in the Spirit or did you start by being a good guy, a good dude? Well, now let's actually, let's go and let's consider your sanctification. Let's consider your transformation. How you're being changed day by day. And when you pause and consider how you're growing day by day, when you're genuinely honest, do you say, you know, I'm getting better day by day because I am a good and righteous guy. Again, any Christian who actually understands anything about themselves would say, absolutely not. I work hard, but that doesn't even guarantee results. How many times have you worked hard and still sinned? (laughs) 
How many times have you found yourself echoing Paul in Romans? Where he's saying, look, the things that I don't want to do, I still do them. And I hate it. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? I love Paul's question. Are are you so foolish, Galatian church, that when it comes time to evaluate the change that's taking place in your life, to say that it's you at work instead of God. Are you so foolish? Let me again pause and reflect for those of you that have been believers for a long time, a long time. Go back, let's rewind the clock, a decade. And just think about some of the ways that the Lord has changed you. right? Some of the ways he's sanctified you. And here's the fun part is some of those you think, man, you know, I actually had to work really hard at that one. The Lord, it, my effort was fully involved. He, he you know, captured my heart. And did some of them you're going to look at and go, I never even saw that one coming, did I? He did it anyways. And I'm different. And what a glory that God's mercy is poured out upon us. We're transformed day by day. From glory into glory. As if that that weren't enough. He continues to kick them while they're down. Have you been perfected by the flesh? Obviously not. Your flesh isn't good enough, right? You're not perfect yet. So obviously your flesh didn't do a good job. It's the spirit at work in you. Next, did you suffer so many things in vain if it was in vain if it was indeed in vain and here that word suffer is kind of a it's a double entendre it means both suffering and experience and meaning saying look you came into the faith trusting in the lord's mercy everything that has since followed either is connected to that mercy or it's a lie which is it Which is it? Uh, All of the good things that God is doing in you, all of the the comfort you had through trials, all of the suffering connected to your faith, all of the Christian experience you've received, all of that either rests upon the mercy you initially received, the the, the mercy that brought you into the faith, or that was a lie. Which is it going to be? Your experience tells you you've been transformed by the mercy of God. Is your heart lying to you? It doesn't stop there. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And I love this because he's talking about the miracles the Galatian church is seeing, and they are seeing miracles. I mean, they're seeing miracles all around them. And and brothers and sisters, it's the same miracles that we are seeing around us. Because what is he saying? Look, as the church hears in faith, miracles happen. People are brought from death into life. And that is a miracle. And bad people are transformed into righteous men and women. And that is a miracle. 
I mean, think about it. The man who's writing this, he's a murderer. I mean, really, he's a communist murderer. He's a murderer. And yet here he is, the greatest church planter in history. Having been transformed, uh, the miracle of God working in and through him, they see it not by works of the law, right? Paul wasn't like, oh, I should just be a better guy. If I'm just a better guy, it'll be awesome. No, he's transformed by the Spirit. The Christian experience absolutely confirms the nature of the gospel. Absolutely confirms it. We see this a thousand times over, right? How many of you have ever prayed, Dear Lord, thank you for finally realizing that I'm good enough to be on your team? (laughs) It's so obvious that our hearts, we know this, we resonate this all of the time. Our prayers are the best way to see it. Because if we pause and reflect for a moment... We know it's mercy, right? I love the the kind of quip. It's a little bit of a joke, but it says, you know, at their hearts, no one actually believes in evolution because they knew if they knew that it was true, they knew they wouldn't be here, right? I mean, the the joke is that if if it's the strongest that survive, I'm not going to be here. I would not have lasted. I would not have made it. If that's true, I'm not. And it's the same thing we look at with our faith. If it comes down to me and my merit, oh dear, I'm in trouble. I have been in trouble, I will be in trouble, and I am currently in trouble. But instead, it is mercy. Well, this is uh, fun, right? That he would say, look, the heart of Christian experience confirms the gospel. Which if you're kind of reading between the lines and starting to kind of do the math and start thinking through the larger structure of my sermon, that's going to make you a little bit uncomfortable at some sense. Because I've just given you one way to test the gospel is by your experience. And the reality of the matter is our hearts lie. And there will be people on the last day that say, Lord, we did good deeds in your name. And he says, be gone from me. I never knew you. That's why the Holy Spirit and Paul wisely connect a second thing to it. Your experience is invaluable for determining the truth of the gospel, but it's not enough. What does he jump to after that? Well, then, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preaching the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall, and everybody's automatically gone, their brains are mush because he jumps into theology mode. I love it. It's gorgeous. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is also in the packaging. Right? Christian experience confirms the truth of the gospel. The scriptures themselves confirm the truth of the gospel and it is imperative that we do not lose either look at what he says he's given them the the experiential test to see is the gospel at work in you do you have the spirit living in you are you being transformed but then he also jumps over to say well look let's make sure that it's actually god that's working in you 
All right, let's, let's actually make sure it's the correct one. Let's, let's do the test to see if it is the Lord. And the way we do that is to examine the content of your belief. Not if you believe, but who you believe. And he does this very quickly. Right? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The ones who are believers, content-wise, are the ones whose faith matches this. It's interesting he uses that term, sons of Abraham, because he's trying to intentionally draw the long-term timeline connection. Right? When you see that phrase, they're, they're trying to locate Christianity on that spectrum of history to say that it's the content that has been taught from the beginning. It was given to Abraham, and Isaac and Jacob, given to Noah and David, it was given to Moses. This is the same story that God would send his son to redeem for himself a people. And if that weren't clear enough, he goes even further in verse 8, which I, this is magnificent, right? And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So looking ahead and seeing the fulfillment of all the prophecies that God would, um, that he would redeem not just the Jews, but all of his people, preached the gospel to Abraham. So it's the same gospel because we're the same people because the content has never changed. In you shall all the nations be blessed. That promise that God freely gives his mercy. Did Abraham do anything to get that mercy? Nope. What was Abraham prior to the Lord coming to him and giving him his mercy? Correct answer is he's a pagan. He was a grown-up pagan. And the Lord grabbed this grown-up pagan and said, You are mine. I will pour my mercy upon you. I will transform you. You will be my child and everyone will be blessed through you. And then many, 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 many generations later, Jesus would show up from that line. You see, what he's saying here is that all of this book is one book. It's not a whole series of books. It's not written by a whole bunch of different authors. Well, it is. But it's primarily written by one author who's telling one story. From the very first page... To the very last page, it's telling one story that God has chosen to redeem men and women, boys and girls, at the expense of his son. That's what Genesis is about. It's what Joel is about. It's what Matthew is about. It's what Jude is about. It's what every book between Genesis and Revelation are about. The content of the scriptures. The proof is in the packaging. We can look at, at what the scriptures say and it tells us the nature of the gospel. Well, very quickly, what do we do with this? Well, one is uh, it's very important for the church that we use both of these tests when it comes time to evaluate faith. That we're holding both the content test and the experience test. Right? We'll give you an illustration. When new members come to the session to give their testimony, we look for both categories. We want to make sure that the content of their faith is correct. 
right? If we have a person come in and says, you know what? I just love being at this church. I love learning about the Bible. And Jesus was a pig. They will not get in because the content will be so catastrophically problematic that we will say no. We will instruct them and love them and hope that they will learn that Jesus is indeed the Son of God and the Son of Man, not anything less. Now, that's a graphic illustration and kind of over the top, but how about when we have a person that would come in and say, well, you know what? I love the church. I love the people. I love the Bible. I love being here. It makes me a better person because I was a good person when I got here. Ooh, now that's much trickier, isn't it? That's actually the kind of thing that we find ourselves sometimes saying, isn't it? And that's the problem is to see ourselves as deserving, to see ourselves as contributing to mercy, to see ourselves as righteous. That's a content problem. But the beautiful thing is we don't just look for that, right? We don't just have people come in and if they can give us a Theology 101, if they can pass a theology exam, well, you're good enough to be a member, right? Doesn't matter if you actually believe it. Doesn't matter if you let it. As long as you can pass a theology test, you're in, right? Wrong. You have to have both. You have to have that experience to see how is the Lord changing you now? How are you being transformed from glory into glory? How is the new man growing within you? How is the Spirit of God killing those portions of the old man that still linger and perniciously try to mess you up? How are you being changed? Well, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you, one, let these categories sink in and become a part of who you are as you think about things. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. But two is to spend time evaluating your own heart. To spend time evaluating both of those things for you. You remember how we started out with Hebrews? I I actually had a trick up my sleeve, right? That's the nature of the danger for the church today, right? The the problem in Hebrews is you're dealing with a church that in many cases started with the right answers. But they grew a little bit hard and a little bit calloused and drifted a little bit and then become confused. And whereas it looked like they started so well, It looks like they're going to end so badly because they took simple and small steps compromising experience and content. And it's interesting that the author of Hebrews, as part of his great rebuke to them, is to rebuke them in content, Christ is better, and in experience. See that you do not harden your heart as they did at Meribah. For I said to them, they will surely not enter into my rest. That's what we read for the statement of need, wasn't it? To pause and momentarily, just take this afternoon, take an hour, take ten minutes, take five minutes, and contemplate how is my heart doing in experience and doing in content? Am I wavering in biblical content? Do I even know what the Bible teaches? Maybe I don't know. Oh, that's a good realization to have. If you don't know what the Bible teaches, that's fantastic. Come talk to me. Let's work that out. Maybe you're going, well, I understand what the Bible teaches, but my experience is just rotten right now. 
Well, that's another issue altogether. Why? Why am I encouraging you to take this spiritual inventory, to take tabs of what's going on in your soul? Well, uh, it's because of how the passage starts, doesn't it? It's my favorite beginning to this chapter. (laughs) I love it. Oh, son. Son, what were you thinking, man? If I have heard that said to me once, I have heard it at least a thousand times. I have earned it 10,000 more than that. But because I know my own propensity to be like that young man, Calvin, and to be captivated and caught up in something that seems like such a good idea, and to crush myself at the bottom of the hill, having ridden the sled down at a thousand miles an hour, because I was not taking inventory along the way as to what's going on in my heart, And what's going on in my head? What's the content of my faith? What's the experience of my faith? Am I being careful? Or am I, as that young man, throwing my caution into the wind and pursuing my life to the fullest, my joys and my pleasures, and endangering my soul? Because honestly, I'd rather get this response now, right, than at the last day. I'd rather work it out now than later. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for passages like this. We thank you that we have passages that are warm and affirming, where you pledge yourself to be uh, the shelter for us, the rock, the strong tower, the one who draws us within his wings. But we also have these that remind us that we are not nearly as clever as we think we are. Lord, we ask that you would give us time and the energy and the courage to take a spiritual inventory, to consider our experience, and to consider the content of our faith, and to consider how we are in you, that we might find joy, greater joy, life abundant in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.